Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. Just uh, enjoying another another day in Biden's America. <laughs> yes, it is another day in Biden's America. We're actually going to talk today a lot about the governing that Biden and Democrats are, are doing in Washington. Uh, for the most part today, we are going to talk about the early tenures of John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock in the U.S. Senate. They're about a month into their terms as we're recording this on February 15th, and they are right in the middle of negotiations over COVID relief, and they just gave their votes to convict President Trump in his second impeachment trial as that uh, episode comes to an end. So we're going to check in on, on what's been going on with them as they settle into Washington. And then for our second topic this week, we're going to give you just a grab bag of stuff from the legislature and, and state-level politics. Um, session to this point has been a little bit slow, uh, but it looks like we have some coming attractions in the next couple of weeks as session gets heated up and uh, Governor Kemp dealing with uh, a lot of healthcare issues that we're going to discuss today. But first, Luke, let's dive in on the early tenures of Senators Ossoff and Warnock, our, our two new Democratic senators. Their victories, which secured a Democratic Senate majority, gives President Biden and congressional Democrats the opportunity to secure a substantial COVID-19 relief bill and pursue Democrats' expansive legislative agenda. And we'll also talk about their votes in the just-concluded impeachment trial. But Luke, I want to talk about first... What has been their primary focus every time you've seen them in the media, every time you've heard from them, and that's COVID relief. Um, it's been notable to me, uh, Senator Ossoff's team sent a press release out last week listing out some of the main priorities that they're working on in COVID relief. And the top line of that press release was actually that average Georgians, an average Georgian family of four making $75,000 a year would get $5,600 in direct payments under the COVID-19 relief bill that's currently being negotiated in Washington. That's from the stimulus checks that both Senators Warnock and Ossoff advocated for on the campaign trail, as well as an expanded child tax credit. And on top of that direct financial relief, uh, there are also other provisions in the bill that would bring $2 billion in federal funding for Medicaid expansion, would provide funding to HBCUs in our state, debt relief for black farmers, uh, additional assistance for, for renters and homeowners and money for vaccine distribution and K through 12 schools. Kind of a lot of the, the basket of relief proposals that we've been hearing about um, over the last year or so. But Principally among this to me, Luke, is the, the very definitive statement, particularly from John Ossoff, that this is a bill that's going to give you, and by you I mean average family of four, $5,600 in cash. Is that notable to you, Luke, to see two, Georgia's two new Democratic senators rallying around a massive federal relief bill, the centerpiece of which is cash to Georgians? It's funny, Kyle, because it's both notable and not surprising. So to hit the not surprising part is that I, I, I'm not surprised at all that Senators Warnock and Ossoff are hitting on these things and hitting on them so hard because they campaigned on them very, very hard. And if anything, I think it is a admirable distinction uh, between them and many other politicians and just how focused they've been on delivering on promises made while campaigning. Because if there was one promise that was made by Warnock and Ossoff, it, it was if they got elected, there would be direct family aid, uh, you know, to, to Georgians, to Americans. And they have so far been very, very focused on that. You mentioned a lot of different little policy items, little, you know, uh, ways of helping Georgia's black farmers and helping out other populations in the state. But primarily speaking, they are always coming back to these direct payments. And I think that is a reflection of them staying focused on trying to achieve that political promise that they campaigned on, which I think is great. I wish more people, you know, did that of, you know, really focusing in on some specific policy issues and actually delivering on them or at least trying very, very hard to deliver on them. But on the other hand, <laughs> it is amazing to see 
to Georgia senators doing that and being that focused on a policy issue so unambiguously you know focus on the state providing you with assistance because that is uh, not something you've seen from many of Georgia uh, elected politicians uh, in, in quite a while and on either side of the aisle of being so unafraid of you know the government being the good guy and so on, on that on that sense it is remarkable uh, even though it's unsurprising well, and another trend that I, I wondered if we'd see from Georgia senators that you've seen from other senators where the states they represent are very evenly split between Republicans and Democrats is some Democratic senators like Joe Manchin in West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema in Arizona, they have kind of encouraged Democrats at times to trim back their ambitions for COVID-19 relief. Earlier on in, in the debate over the relief package, I say earlier on, this was maybe like a week and a half or two weeks ago now, um, there was this big discussion about whether or not the direct payments, the stimulus payments would be trimmed back to people with lower incomes. So to take away some of the payments from people with higher incomes. And it was Joe Manchin that seemed to be pushing that idea. Some of the other moderates in the Democratic caucus were interested in this. And both Warnock and Ossoff opposed trimming back eligibility for these payments. So it's notable to me that you haven't seen that inclination in Georgia senators, where both of them had some of the closest races in the entire country. You haven't seen that same type of approach that you've seen out of senators represent, representing Arizona or West Virginia. What do you make of of that, of, of Ossoff and Warnock standing more firmly sort of in the center of, of where progressive Democrats are on what needs to be done in COVID relief. So I think there is an element of just human personalities and people having different political styles and uh, different priorities because, you know, John Ossoff and Warnock both were elected as, I am a fighter for you, I believe that government can help. You know, they, they are just very ideologically or and it's not like they're they're not it's not an ideological thing like on the left right spectrum it's like the up down spectrum of like believing government has a role in society to help people like they're very very firm on that even if they aren't super hardcore lefties in the way that bernie is i think that's part of it and then you know comparing i think the the most notable comparison in my mind is actually arizona which I think you mentioned, which is, I mean, it's interesting to me that both of those states had special elections very recently due to longtime, well-respected senators retiring uh, or, in John McCain's case, passing away. Um, the thing I find really fascinating there as a comparison is that the two senators from Arizona and the two senators from Georgia give a lot of coverage, but for very different reasons. The senators from Arizona are getting a lot of coverage because they are both seen as moderate senators who are uh, worried about pushing things too far. At least in my opinion, a, they're, they're worried about the perspective of pushing things too far, of looking like they are being radical in anything they are doing. Whereas as far as they are voting, they're about in line with the rest of the Democratic Party, but they're very worried about the perception. Whereas John Ossoff and Warnock are very worried, at least from what I have seen, uh, about the perspective that they did not deliver on their promise and they and promises and that the government is not delivering. They, they seem to be very, very focused on the concrete reality, the answer to the question, did we get things done to address these crises? Because that is what we campaigned on. Whereas the two Arizona senators really seemed to focus on, like, are we hitting our promise to be independent, maverick, Arizona-y voices. And I think that really is just a reflection of the two states they are in. Arizona is a traditional swing state, I think, in the way that you think of it, whereas, you know, there's a, there's Republican voters and there's Democrat voters and then there's a bunch of people in the middle who swing between elections. And it does matter, like, how you look and how you perceived by those electorates. Where in Georgia... There's definitely a independent population, but I think it's significantly smaller. And in Georgia, it's a turnout game where the electorate 
is not changing its mind very often. The decision that really matters in Georgia is the, am I going to vote? Most people are pretty locked in on the who they would vote for. It's a question of if they're going to vote or not. And I think that is a key reason those senators approach it differently, because for Ossoff and Warnock, there's really not much of a problem of them appearing to really be strong advocates for government action because the people that elected them are also uh, those strong advocates and they're not going to gain or lose a bunch of their voters based on those perceptions. It's, it's a turnout game for them, whereas in Arizona, it is a persuasion game. The other trend that I've noticed is sort of the night and day difference between the approach to governing that you saw primarily by Kelly Leffler, but to some extent by David Perdue in comparison to both uh, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. So I've been intrigued by this media blitz that John Ossoff has done recently, raising the need for federal funding, federal aid to go directly to Georgia cities with populations under 500,000, which aside from the metro Atlanta area is really every other city in Georgia. Um, he has done media appearances in, in Savannah and in other parts of the state, and he's sponsored a bill that would deliver aid directly to these smaller cities as opposed to routing that aid through the governor's office. Um, and Georgia cities and other cities across the country are calling on Congress to deliver this aid because in a lot of places, the aid from the previous bill, which was called the CARES Act, did not actually end up in the hands of cities and counties. I mean, if it did end up in their hands, the, there were a lot of strings attached to how that funding could be used. Um, so cities and counties are saying that they are still facing a financial crunch because of the COVID-19 pandemic, and they need additional help. And this is an issue that John Ossoff has been really focused on. Um, it's interesting in Georgia, Maggie Lee reported this at Supporter Report, the four metro Atlanta counties, Fulton, Cobb, DeKalb, and Gwinnett, along with the city of Atlanta, they got funds amounting to about $175 per person living that in that area to spend, and they got that money directly from the federal government. And then all of Georgia's other smaller cities got a combined $371 million that turned out to be about $53 per person. So a really big difference there in how this aid was divided between larger places and smaller places in our state and in states across the country. All that is, it's kind of a wonky issue. Um, this is money that cities say is necessary to help them run vaccine awareness campaigns to be sure that they have enough money to pay local public health and public safety personnel to help provide grants to businesses to help them pay your their utilities and avoid foreclosure and to, and to help people experiencing homelessness in their communities. Um, at the same time, I'm struck by John Ossoff doing a media blitz, sponsoring this legislation, putting a lot of his sort of governing and communications effort into an issue like this. When you looked at somebody like Kelly Leffler early in her Senate tenure, she was trying to make her name by sponsoring bills that would take money away from cities that defunded the police and put forward this sort of like message legislation that was just another bullet in the culture war. So I'm in some ways, I'm surprised, Luke. Is this what responsible governance looks like? Uh, maybe it's it's what the attempt to be responsible governing looks like. Because, uh, I mean, the thing is, is like, I, I know you were saying that from a negative perspective for Kelly Loeffler, and I, I, too, don't want our senators to, like, think that is their job, to, like, win the messaging war and, like, you know, own the libs or own the conservatives. I don't save want that Christmas. to be... Save yeah, Christmas. Yeah, save Christmas. Uh, I think Christmas is fine, but, you know, I digress. Uh, the, the thing I find interesting here is just the fact that it's very clear that the electorate the people that voted for john ossoff and raphael warnock are just very different in their priorities because to be fair to kelly loffler especially i mean the people that elected her and voted for her those were priorities for them like to have one say i'm stopping socialism and i'm owning the libs like that's what they wanted <laughs> because she campaigned pretty clearly on like that was what she was going to do and so, I mean, in that sense, yeah, like it is 
I guess I'm just less surprised than you are because like the people who voted for that, their candidate lost. So the fact that the people who voted for candidates who kept talking about how I want to go up to Washington and fight for policies that will help you are now in Washington fighting for policies that they think will help the people that voted for them, like, is not that shocking to me. I think it's just shocking because it's new, because it's been so long since we've had someone in office in Georgia that has that ability to do that, because, you know, all respect in the world to our congressional delegation you just don't have the platform to like propose things like this uh when you are a member of a over you know (laughs) several hundred person body whereas if you are a senator you are one of a hundred and you're the things you say uh has a much much bigger impact because the other thing i would say here too is you know to to counter examples is like one if kelly loffler was still there she'd be saying the exact same crap she was saying when she was there and she would be you know releasing half page press releases with you know giant bold text of this is socialism and bag and that's why i'm voting against it and similarly if two years ago if abrams had won like i think this is really what we would have seen from her budget proposal you know like she would have come up with a bunch of programs like this and it would be a very radically different feeling and mood than what you see from Brian Kemp, and it's just because they were elected by different coalitions with different priorities. Yeah, and I I agree with you there. It 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 is surprising to me just because of what it what a change of pace it is. It it makes sense that different coalitions are looking for different things. I think the interesting test to me though going forward about this, particularly as you look forward to Warnock having to run again in two years, is I have and I talked a lot about this during the campaign season, I have felt that there is a larger portion of Georgia's electorate that wants to see responsible governance. And when Republicans were at their peak of power somewhere about between 2012 and 2014 in Georgia, they spent a lot of time talking about responsible conservative governance with a focus on education and keeping taxes low. But it felt very, you know, uh, well-managed and, um, you know, it was consistent with their ideology, but it was well managed, predictable, and not very stressful. And this is the same type of governance from a more progressive lens. Does this type of governance allow maybe some of the the voters who newly voted for Democrats during this last cycle, um, who want to see the temperature in politics turned down? Does this type of approach to governing and just focusing on the nuts and bolts issues, does it actually keep voters in, in your fold or um, or will they be discouraged and, and Kelly Leffler is ready to uh, fire everybody up again with her fight against socialism? Yeah, I, I mean, the thing I think here is that we don't know who the opponent that Raphael Warnock will be eventually facing in two years is going to be, but I'm going to go out on a very, very sturdy branch (laughs) here instead of a limb and say that they are going to campaign against all of these programs, no matter how much they are actually helping Georgians and call it socialism. Because, I mean, that's just what the Republican Party does. Like, they did that when Social Security was proposed. And, you know, it's, it's sort of the normal expectation that the conservative party will say that the things that the liberal party are doing are scary and you should be afraid of them. And so in in that way, very little has actually changed because the only difference now is the fact that the person who's in the driver's seat is the, you know, the progressive person versus the um, conservative person. And so in, in that way, I think, you will be much more comfortable, <laughs> you know, in about two, you know, in, when the campaign cycle uh, really gets going, because the familiar messages that you're used to and tone and rhetoric will return uh, to the forefront. And so you'll you'll be a little more acquainted. Let's shift gears here and talk about impeachment. So you and I are talking on Monday afternoon, and this weekend, the Senate concluded its impeachment trial against President Trump, the second one. Um, and the Senate pretty predictably 
voted to acquit President Trump. Uh, That means that they did not reach the two-thirds majority of senators that they needed to convict the president, although they did get 57 votes, including seven Republicans and the vote of every Democrat in the U.S. Senate. That obviously included both John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. Luke, any surprises there? It's sort of an interesting trick of, of the calendar here that almost a year ago, Kelly Loeffler was making her first vote, one of her first significant votes in the first impeachment trial. And obviously her and David Perdue voted to acquit President Trump in that first one. In the second one, Ossoff and Warnock side with the rest of the Democrats in the Senate Democratic Caucus. But to me... I mean, it's sort of similar to the trend we observed in the way they've approached policy. Um, it's not really surprising to me that they voted to convict. Any surprises there to you? No. Yeah. I mean, there are no surprises here. And I think really the you know counterfactual would have been more interesting of like how they would have voted on the first impeachment. But I'm pretty sure they also would have voted for that one because... And, you know, we're not having impeachment as a full topic, but impeachment really is, in a lot of ways, a political process, far more than it is a criminal process. And this is, you know, my legal education brain talking, but impeachment trials are barely trials (laughs) in in a legal sense. And the political jurors versus the your traditional criminal trial jurors are just given very different instructions and have very different obligations and so to me it's not surprising that they voted that way and voted that way with so few reservations and i think this again just comes back to what i was talking about with the georgia electorate is it's not like there's a huge part of the ossoff and warnock electorate that were a bunch of people who voted for trump in 16 and they voted for you know, Isaacson and Purdue when they ran initially and now they've changed their minds. Like those people exist and they are some part of the electorate, I'm sure. But a much larger percentage of Warnock and Ossoff's electorate are just Democrats. So that that to me is what I think we're seeing reflected in, in their votes and the fact that they voted with very few reservations. Now, there were some vocal Democrats, vocal progressives on Twitter who criticized congressional Democrats for not drawing this process out longer. There was a report late on Friday that there was a Republican member of the U.S. House that knew of a conversation between between Trump and, and House Republican Kevin McCarthy during the insurrection at the Capitol on the 6th and that conversation would have given senators and given the public a sense of Trump's state of mind as insurrectionists were descending on the Capitol. Um, And so for a brief moment on Saturday afternoon, Democratic impeachment managers were considering calling witnesses before the Senate, including this one particular House Republican who knew of this conversation between McCarthy and Trump. And ultimately, they decided to back down. They ended up deciding not to call witnesses. They did the closing arguments really quickly on Saturday afternoon, and this thing was over within a week of it starting. Luke, is there any reason that, particularly in this frame of of John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, is there any reason that they or other Democrats should have pushed to have this process last longer and make a more detailed and potentially more damning argument to the public about President Trump's state of mind on January 6th during the insurrection? At this point, there is only one question that needed to be asked regarding should this trial continue or should it end when it did. And that question is, if we went on any longer, would we get enough votes to convict Donald Trump in the Senate? And the answer to that question was very, very, very clearly no, that there was nothing they could do to convince any of these Republicans that didn't vote for Trump's conviction at this point to change their vote. And so, and from what I've heard too, (laughs) there's at least some concern that if they kept going, they might lose some of the votes they had. And so with, with that in mind, I think they made the right decision to wrap this thing up, both because they were not going to convict Trump and getting Biden's agenda done is so much more important than 
continuing this process. And I think that's true for a couple of reasons um, that have been noted by others and uh, will develop over time. One is that like this is not the end of this conversation. This is just the end of the Senate being a political remedy to Donald Trump's behavior. Because even as Mitch McConnell, <laughs> you know, who voted to acquit, he then proceeded immediately to give a speech basically saying, I blame Donald Trump for this and there are other ways to hold him accountable for his behavior. And then two, there is a pretty decent bipartisan consensus on continuing to look into what happened on January 6th in a frame of like trying to prevent it from ever happening again, which I think is great, and trying to get to the bottom of exactly how it all came together. And through those forums, I think there will be more that comes out that makes Trump look bad and other people look bad and will and that will very likely lead to other kinds of repercussions because one mindset that I think we're still stuck in that I've like had to work really hard to not keep myself in is the fact that when Donald Trump was president he was truly in many ways he was completely unaccountable to consequences because there was only one check that could really hurt him and that was impeachment and so in many ways the first impeachment felt a lot more vital to me than this one did because of the fact that he was still in office. And so while I, I would have voted to convict him, I think, you know, all the other senators should have as well. The one piece of like, you know, consolation I take is the fact that there are other ways to hold him accountable in our own beloved state of Georgia. The new district attorney in Fulton, Fannie Willis, has opened up an investigation into Donald Trump and his call with Brad Raffensperger. That is not a political process. I mean, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like, this is going to be a legal case. Now, obviously, there will be political implications and political pressures, but how the process actually works will be in the legal system. And I'm sure that there will be cases in New York and other states. And so... In that sense, I take some solace in the fact that I find it very unlikely that this is the last, like, annoyance that Donald Trump is going to have to deal with for his behavior. And so I am beyond convinced that he will not get away from these issues and that he is going to have to keep dealing with them. And one thing that I am really interested to see is if he continues to pursue the very bad lawyers and legal strategies that he's pursued thus far, because while he's been rewarded in the media and in, you know, political circles for getting these bombastic lawyers who make completely absurd legal arguments, but they look good on TV, he will get severely punished in other courts uh, of law for doing that. And if his, you know, freedom is on the line, I, I'm very curious if he's going to continue to pursue, pursue these legal strategies because they will not go the way he thinks they will if he's been happy with how his current representation has pursued his uh, cases. Yeah, so you have those other opportunities for accountability, particularly in a criminal context. Um, we'll see how those play out. The other thing I did see, some people seem to downplay the threat that continuing on with the impeachment process would be a risk to Biden getting his agenda enacted in the Senate. And it is true that the Senate could set up a process by which they do continued impeachment in part of the day and then substantive legislative business in another part of the day. But I can remember when activists wanted Senate Democrats to try to hold up the Trump agenda Trump nominations for the courts or um, or or his bad tax bill from 2017 that they wanted Senate Democrats to use every procedural tool at their disposal to basically slow down floor activity. And the thing that you saw in the reaction from Trump's legal team at the impeachment hearing on Saturday was that they were suddenly surprised and very upset that this thing could get dragged out even further. And I think it was Lindsey Graham said something about being willing to call up to a hundred witnesses if, if they want to. 
to me, avoiding any of that procedural risk is totally worth it in terms of pushing the agenda through. And you could sort of infer from the approach that Warnock and Ossoff have taken, along with the approach a lot of other Senate Democrats have taken, that they feel that getting their agenda through, making sure that real help gets to people in the next year or so is their political path to retaining their majorities in the House and the Senate. And I tend to agree with them that that's the most getting that substantive relief done and moving on to other substantive parts of Joe Biden's agenda and the Democrats agenda is, I think, the most important political project right now and not uh, political or, or legal revenge on Donald Trump. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I'm very happy that that is the path that they are pursuing. And so I'm very curious to see how that works out for them, because if they are successful, both in achieving the political goals they have set of getting real help to people um, and in reelection for Warnock in 22, I think that will be a real lesson for Democrats, because I have been skeptical for a long time of the approach some Democrats take of trying to water themselves and their policy goals down. And the fact that both Warnock and Ossoff are campaigning and governing uh, from their you know seats in the Senate uh, in a very clear, direct, unambiguous way, I, I think it will be a really interesting case study because they're not doing what you know, the most far left senators do of just being really radical in their proposals. They are just being very consistent in pushing big, but common sense ideas. And so I I see them differently than I see AOC or Bernie Sanders. And and I think they've learned some good things from them on how they communicate, but they aren't just adopting wholesale those far left ideas. Though, of course, the Republicans will say they have. So there's one other interesting trend that I want to talk about, particularly as it relates to Senator Warnock, and that is Georgia's going to have a very influential set of members from the delegation involved in the issue of agriculture. So they're going to have uh, Representative David Scott as the chairman of the House Agriculture Committee. Representative Sanford Bishop maintains his role as the chairman of the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Agriculture. And then Senator Warnock asked to be on the Senate Agriculture Committee, and he has already joined legislation that would provide a particular COVID-19 relief aid to black farmers, as well as deal with issues of discrimination from the USDA against black farmers in Georgia and in other states across the country. And Patricia Murphy at the AJC, she had a really interesting column on this that we'll put in show notes. Um, but she noted, she talked to Dr. Veronica Womack, who's a who's an expert on agricultural issues at Georgia College and State. And they noted that Black families owned about 20% of family farms in America in 1938. And today that number has fallen down to only 1.8%. And previously, Black families had been literally forced off of their land. And then in more recent times, they were sort of pushed off their land by discriminatory loan and repayment practices at the USDA, which is some of what uh, Senator Warnock is is seeking um, to fix in a, in a bill that he has sponsored with uh, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey. Luke, I thought that this was a bit of a an underappreciated dynamic that we're suddenly going to have in Georgia. You know, Georgia's always been a big agriculture state and Georgians have always had significant influence in agricultural policy in Washington. I mean, under the Trump administration, our former governor, Sonny Perdue, was literally the uh, secretary of of agriculture and and ran USDA. Um, but it's going to be a bit of a different lens this time. And, and to me, it opens up an interesting opportunity for Democrats to deliver substantive, responsible governance on behalf of people living in rural parts of our state um, in, a, in a way that maybe they haven't had in the last 20 or 30 years. 
That's definitely true. And the thing I, I find really interesting on that is you're absolutely right. Georgia is a huge agricultural state and it is a big part of our economy and people, you know, forget about it because of Atlanta being so important to the state as well. But like agricultural stuff still really, really matters to the state. And unlike previous times, I mean, this is the first time in a really, really long time where the agricultural interests in Georgia will not really have a Republican to go to because both of our senators are now Democrats and the House Senate and presidency are held by Democrats. And so I really can't think off the top of my head of the last time it was like this for uh, Georgians. I really, I guess, I guess it's a Clinton administration within the last time where, yeah, but yeah, but even in the nineties, I think was, I think Coverdale might've been in the nineties or was he two thousands? I can't remember, but I digress. The main point is regardless of the exact last time (laughs) that this was the case, it is definitely the case right now where the people who really have access to the levers of power are all Democrats right now. Of course, there are still Republican members in the House who are, uh, you know, able to help on agricultural issues, I'm sure. But it's not like Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to uh, get some big agricultural deliverable to the state, especially because she's not on any committees anymore. But I'm sure there's a Republican member uh, on the agricultural committee. I mean, even for the the Republicans that Georgia agricultural officials could talk to if they want to go to a decision maker, they're going to go to their Democratic colleague in the delegation, whether it's uh, David Scott or Sanford Bishop, um, to get decisions across the finish line anyways. Yeah. And that's just not the that's just a dynamic that hadn't been there for a long time. And so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out and uh, how those relationships get built because one thing I've been watching and have mentioned on the show is that like I I really think there is a underestimated benefit for Democrats in this moment of just doing the blocking and tackling of governance well because as much as businesses like hate having having to pay taxes and they hate having regulation and all that kind of stuff especially right now during a crisis like they need things um and this is not a situation that's just like purely corporate welfare i mean we are in a once in a lifetime pandemic there are real legitimate problems that businesses of all sizes are going through and i'm you know going out again on a sturdy branch in saying that i think the democrats will deliver on those things better than the republicans did just because they actually believe in them whereas the republicans did not and so i'm kind of curious how this plays out and what alliances potentially are formed when you know your choices are incompetent people who will mostly leave you alone but can't help you with anything or competent people who will ask you to contribute but will actually help you when they can and so that's that's a dynamic i'm really interested in seeing how it plays out and i think um specifically for Warnock, being in that position on the Agricultural Committee will really, really be meaningful for him and be helpful. I do think there's a bit of a different focus to, in some ways, different constituencies that our Democratic senators and Democrats in our delegation are going to act on behalf of compared to their Republican counterparts. You know, a lot of the uh, paycheck protection aid that went directly to businesses or that was delivered to businesses through banks, it was much easier for larger companies and companies that had better relationships with their banks and their capital providers. It was much easier for them to access that kind of aid than it was for smaller businesses, for businesses that are led by people of color. Um, When you look at the issue of money going directly to county and local governments, one of the people that I saw who was most upset about the distribution of funds from the state to localities was Savannah Mayor Van Johnson, who has been at odds with Governor Kemp before, but he told local media there that he felt the state had abandoned a commitment that it had made. Um, And so I think 
what you're seeing from Democrats early in this process and, and the potential for this to play itself out throughout the next couple of years while Democrats maintain this majority is even the even among the government programs that were being put forward by Republicans during uh, the relief period over the last year, when those programs have not worked for businesses led by people of color, for black farmers, for um, smaller cities that, that didn't have equal access to aid, Democrats feel more sensitive to those concerns and more willing to work on behalf of those constituencies to fix these problems with this aid and be sure that it's distributed more equitably so that we have a more equitable recovery from COVID-19. And I think if, if they can be successful in doing that, you know, I sound, I know it sounds like we've been singing their praises constantly of, of John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. They still have to deliver here and it's not going to be easy. They are also two brand new senators who are undoubtedly going to face challenges, getting their priorities heard by their colleagues um, but if they are able to deliver on that, and we'll be looking closely to see if they do, that will be, I think, a big step forward for Democrats in terms of how they campaign in the future, because now they can give an example of what democratic governance looks like and how it's it's fought for and, and uh, represented different constituencies than Republicans have traditionally represented. Um, and if that puts Republicans puts pressure on Republicans at the state level to do better at governance. I think that's a good thing all around. Yeah, I I agree with that. And I think we are in a little bit of a unique situation here because of the fact that both of them were elected in a runoff situation at the same time where they determined the control of the Senate or not, because we've seen, you know, Chuck Schumer, the Senate Democratic leader, the majority leader of the Senate has given them a lot of special attention and has given them a lot of spotlight to highlight these things and i think there's two big reasons for that one because chuck schumer would like to remain majority leader and he knows he needs both of those seats um and he definitely needs warnock seat you know in 22 and the ability to give them this clear win i think really is seen by them rightfully so as an important priority for the majority, but also since Biden really campaigned hard for Ossoff and Warnock on this exact issue of direct aid. And so while Ossoff and Warnock probably aren't going to get everything they're talking about, giving them the you know face of this issue, I think, is a smart idea for the Democrats nationally just because of the fact that they already had become such good spokespeople on these issues because they campaigned on them so hard that even as really new senators, I imagine they are more familiar with some of these ideas and the benefits of them than some of their colleagues. I'm just, you know, it's, uh, I'm taking a guess here, but it, it is something they talked about way more than I've seen other people talk about. And so on that sense, I think this issue is one where they're going to potentially get really clear wins. What I'm curious about is like the next three or four issues, how they address those and how you know much can they keep it up? Because it's easy to do it once, but doing it the second and third time, I think, will be a lot harder. Let's wrap up here with a few issues closer to home here in, in Georgia politics and, and starting at the legislature. Um, so last week, the legislature finalized the fiscal year 2021 amended budget. That's the more commonly known as the little budget. We're talking on Monday afternoon and Governor Kemp just signed it within the last hour or so on Monday afternoon. This budget provides $1,000 bonuses to most state employees. It's going to increase pay for correctional officers, increase spending on public health and education compared to the original proposal that was put forward by Governor Kemp. All of this is according to the AJC's excellent budget and fiscal reporter, James Salzer. Uh, public teachers are also going to get $1,000 bonuses, although that comes from federal money, which is somewhat separate from this budget. Um, and as we talked about before, the budget backfills about 60% of the cuts to the education funding formula that Governor Kemp and the legislature made last year. That means it doesn't fill back in the whole cut. Schools are still having to deal with less funding than they should be under the funding formula. And a couple other quick notes about this budget. For the first time, the state is going to spend 
state dollars to try to distribute rural broadband across the state. I believe this money is going to go out in grants to local governments who want to get broadband uh, installed in their communities. And the Department of Public Health is going to get $27 million to uh, upgrade their computers to try to build a vaccine, uh, a system to track vaccine distribution and, and help people access vaccines, something that probably should have been spent last year, but oh well. We digress. Um, any, any, any reactions to the little budget? Uh, I, you know, not to just beat the dead horse that we've been <laughs> beating here. It's just, to me, I understand states' hands are tied, but Kemp, I wish Kemp was just doing a lot more on pushing the need for doing more innovative things with our budget and trying to address the crisis as a crisis and you know, use the bully pulpit more effectively to go after some of the wasteful tax breaks, to find some money to address the needs of this crisis in a real substantive way. And he could have started doing that with the little budget and continue it with the big budget. And I'm just not seeing that. And I don't think we're going to see it. And I think it's depressing uh, because it is so, so desperately needed. Another interesting development in the budget Um, that was also seen in a piece of companion legislation is a target has been put on the back of Georgia Labor Commissioner Mark Butler. Um, There have been a litany of complaints to lawmakers in the state about slow processing and payment of unemployment insurance claims. So the budget funds $100,000 for a new position for a governor-appointed staffer who would share some authority at the Department of Labor with Mark Butler. And a Senate bill that sets up that position, that authorizes it, has 35 bipartisan co-sponsors out of what, like 50, what is it, 53 or 56 senators in the state Senate? More than half of the state Senate would like for a governor-appointed staffer to go hang out with Mark Butler and help him do his job. What do you make of that development? So I think it's, I think the really frustrating thing that I have come to you know my first reaction to this and you know so I'm, I'm holding the door wide open for me to change my opinion uh once i've learned more about it but my first take reaction is i am depressed at how necessary this actually feels because as i've been paying attention to the multiple crises at the department of labor my real takeaway here is that mark butler like doesn't get it like he doesn't understand that there's a problem or even if he like is aware of the metrics that are very bad in his office like he doesn't care about them because like if i heard a bunch of like if i yeah it's just it's strange to me because if i was a politician and i kept opening up the ajc or logging on to ajc and every time my department gets mentioned it is a story of an average Georgian saying, I called 18 times and I couldn't get an answer. I would have reacted to that by like trying to fix the problem or, you know, saying I need more resources from the state, which very notably Mark Butler did not do. His department did not request any more money. And so it's not like it is a situation where the thing like the department is working really well or that he's saying I need X, Y, and Z to make the department run well. He just basically is like the department's running well. I don't know what your problem is. And there's all these stories that highlight that that's not true. And so with that in mind, it seems to me that the the only logical conclusion you can come to is that Mark Butler just like doesn't get it. Like he just fundamentally doesn't get it. And having someone with the authority to, you know, on on a similar level to Mark Butler to talk about these issues and basically say like, Hey, we should do X, Y, and Z, which is what Mark Butler is elected to do. And we're paying him to do. It's frustrating that we're now going to have to spend another hundred thousand dollars for a duplicative position because Mark Butler just like isn't interested in running his department well. Uh, so that that's my my first take reaction. In, in some ways to me, it's a bit unclear how this is actually a solution more so than a, a political statement, kind of a shot across the bow at Commissioner Butler. 
And to back up a little bit for people here, because I'm forgetting how much of this we've actually talked about on the show. I know I also talked to Alex Camardell from GBPI about some of this stuff. And if you haven't listened to that conversation in the feed, you should go back and do that. Um, but to back up here a little bit, the reason that this matters so much is that one of the principal ways the federal government provided aid to people who lost their jobs in the pandemic was to funnel a bunch of additional money through unemployment insurance so that people who were staying home because their restaurant job or their bar job or their theater job, they lost that job or lost some hours at that job because people were sheltering in place because of the pandemic. You wanted to make those people whole or as whole as you could so that they could stay home, not suffer financial ruin, and not feel a bunch of additional pressure to go back into a close contact workplace and and facilitate the spread of COVID. The problem was this big rush of people that accessed the unemployment insurance program in Georgia and in states across the country made it really difficult for these departments. These departments had a really hard time processing these claims, getting this money out the door. And as we've talked about before, there's been a lot of news reports about how not only are claims slow to be paid, but people are also having a hard time reaching the department to get information about their claims. And a lot of them seem to be lost in in the appeals process where people don't know what they need to do to get this thing to the finish line and get the money that they need to keep paying rent, keep meeting their basic needs. All, the, all of which Mark Butler doesn't seem to think is a problem. <laughs> well, it's it's been interesting to watch him operate in this because he has told the legislature that really this was a problem created by Congress and they they used programs that weren't really meant for this purpose to try to provide a bunch of direct aid. But he and he's said that it's been a difficult challenge for his office to meet because they don't have as many pl- employees as they had during the last recession where you had um significantly less people who needed unemployment insurance and needed to interact with the department. But I think the challenge there in terms of figuring all this stuff out is where the responsibility lies, whose whose fault it is, and what is the path to getting the department to a place where it pays everybody who is eligible, it gets money to every person who is reasonably eligible, and it prioritizes getting money in the hands of people who are unemployed. And if Georgia needs to find different ways to do that than specifically unemployment insurance, then the state needs to find a way to do that. All of this is about facilitating relief as quickly as possible and how a governor-appointed staffer to come in and maybe share an office with Mark Butler, put his desk in there with him and tell him he's not doing a good job, how that's actually going to solve the problem just doesn't make sense to me. And so it'll be interesting to see how this actually plays out. It feels a little political to me, um, and I would like to see something a little more substantive, but we'll see how this goes. Well, very quickly, it's entirely political, but I, I think to like defend this move, I think the expectation of this position is, is sort of like I laid out my complaints about Mark Butler. Mark Butler is not doing the things that you would think Mark Butler would be doing as the labor commissioner with this situation being ongoing. And so the solution is to find some other person with the authority to say the Department of Labor needs to do X, Y, and Z to fix what's going on over there. And that's what that person will do since Mark Butler just isn't interested in engaging with those ideas. And you can't make him do it. So you're they're making a position to do it for him. Let's move on to another thing going on in Georgia politics, and that is both Governor Kemp and Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms have been at the center of a discussion in the last few weeks about how to make sure that COVID-19 vaccines are distributed equitably and that the state and everybody who participates in distributing vaccines make sure that people of color are not left behind in this distribution process. Mayor Bottoms was at a panel of governors and mayors at the White House last week where she urged Joe Biden to prioritize uh, distribution to difficult-to-reach communities in Georgia. And Governor Kemp actually participated in a roundtable discussion with uh, State Representative Calvin Smyrie, the dean of 
the Georgia House of Representatives and officials at the Morehouse School of Medicine to lay out the state's commitment to being sure that particularly black Georgians who have been most harmed by this pandemic, that they are not left out of the vaccine distribution process. It's also notable, Luke, that Governor Kemp has been on a bit of a media blitz uh, that Greg Bluestein at the AJC wrote about. Greg noted that uh, Governor Kemp's done 14 press conferences, 30 media interviews. He's visited eight distribution sites uh, since December, all to bring about this perception that he's the vaccine governor leading Georgia into the end of this pandemic. And I'll say that I, I feel a couple of ways about this, but in one way I am heartened that the governor would like to be seen being active on the issue of vaccines as a way to political success for him. That's one way in which I think political incentive is a good thing. But the policies and the actual infrastructure of the state to actually get this vaccine out the door needs to back that up. Yeah, that's that's definitely true, because the, the one thing to give Kemp some slack right, you know, off the top is that the number one problem with Georgia's vaccine distribution right now, as far as I can see it, is supply that we just don't have enough of it. And that's not Kemp's fault because the federal government is in charge of getting those vaccines. They are the ones that are distributing those vaccines to states. And so in that sense, like Kemp, there's I'm sure there's something Kemp could be doing on the supply issue, but there's not nearly as much in my mind uh, on that one. And that is our biggest issue. And so in, in some, you know, senses, he his hands are really tied on that. But the thing that I am almost certain of is that at a certain point, supply is not going to be the big issue and it's going to be the distribution and just how easy is it to get the vaccine that the state is allocating into the arms of Georgians. And I am worried that that's not going to go as well as we hope. Um, you know, for me personally, I'm hoping that um, I'm going to be able to get the UG the the vaccine through UGA because it's doing its own vaccine distribution. But you know, most people are uh, not like me and very uh, closely attached to <laughs> a well-run state institution. Uh, and so I, I'm worried about that. You know, last mile problem of okay, we have all these vaccines in the state. How are we actually going to make sure that our citizens are able to get the vaccine? Um, in a timely manner and, you know, prioritizing those hard to uh, hard hit populations rather. Um, and on those fronts, I'm very happy to see that Kemp is saying things, you know, and, you know, speaking about how he's concerned about it. But this just goes back to the if you're not putting your money where your mouth is, there's only so much you can do. And even if he's prioritizing these things and pushing these things, if he's not putting any money behind it, any new money behind it, it's going to be a lot harder uh, for us to successfully do that. So hopefully um, we're going to be pleasantly surprised and, you know, Kemp can uh, ride to uh, higher poll numbers and, you know, public acclaim for having a great vaccine comeback. I would love that narrative. I'd be really happy to talk about that, but I'm still skeptical that we're going to see that at the moment. It's just better that he feels he can improve his poll numbers by getting the vaccine out there in people's arms than saying the whole thing's a hoax. Yeah. A um, couple more things as we wrap up here. We're going to come back to this healthcare story, but there's a really interesting healthcare story developing in Georgia. Um, listeners may remember we've talked in the past about Georgia doing two separate healthcare waivers as opposed to the option of taking the full Medicaid expansion, the thing that Democrats are constantly campaigning on the policy option that is available to Georgia under the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. The Biden administration has sent word to Governor Kemp that they are going to uh, basically cancel part of the governor's proposal. It's a proposal that conditions access to Medicaid coverage on whether or not a person is working or in school or volunteering, doing some sort of what the prior administration called community engagement activities. Uh, the Biden administration, I think rightfully has said that conditioning access to healthcare on doing these types of activities out in the community during the middle of a global pandemic is a bad idea, and we probably shouldn't be doing that. Um, so it's possible that the waiver proposal that the governor negotiated with 
the Trump administration could end up not coming to be um, under the Biden administration. There was a second piece of that waiver proposal that dealt with people who buy health insurance on the Affordable Care Act's private exchanges. If you're buying private health insurance as an individual, Governor Kemp's proposal would have stopped you from buying that insurance on healthcare.gov. There's an argument, and I think a pretty good legal argument, that that proposal was actually in violation of federal law. And that proposal has also become the subject of a lawsuit in the last few weeks here. This is notable. It's notable on the healthcare policy front, which we will spend more time on in a future episode. But it's also notable on the political front, because as Governor Kemp ramps up his 2022 reelection campaign, he has been telling people that he has gone a place where no other Republican in the country has gone. And that is to jump in on the issue of health care and put forward a conservative solution. And he talks about these waivers that he's done as that solution, the proposal that was called the Patients First Act from I believe it was last year, two years ago now. Um, it's possible that, that that those things could both be out the window by the time he's actually running for re-election and yet again underscores the need for Georgia to take the ACA's Medicaid expansion. Yeah, I've always found that talking point from Kemp really funny <laughs> just because like I think there's a reason why no other Republican has done it because of two big reasons. One, we, you know, must always mention that Kemp's proposal will cover less people and cost more money. It is less fiscally conservative. Just want to be very clear on that. And then two, that it was always very, very vulnerable to the situation that I find, uh, you know, it finds himself in now, which is that Kemp has spent a bunch of time and money and effort and energy on trying to come up with a plan that I guarantee you the Biden administration hates and rightfully sees it as counterproductive and expensive and just a political, you know, platform piece to hang up on the wall of like, look at me, I didn't do what Obama did. And with that in mind, I imagine they're going to do whatever is in their power to have this not be the program in Georgia. And so with that firmly in mind, I think Kemp has really backed himself into a bad corner here because what he's eventually going to you know face is the high probability in my opinion that they either completely throw this out and say you can't do any of this or that it's significantly uh you know paired back especially because they have the arguments around the pandemic on their side i i really would be surprised if the Biden administration is not able to uh really really change or eliminate this waiver. And also notable that uh, both Senator Ossoff and Senator Warnock are on a bill. They're sponsoring a bill in the U.S. Senate that would allow Georgia to have their Medicaid expansion paid for 100% for the first three years, the same deal that every other state that expanded when they were supposed to back in 2014, the same deal that all those other states got. So it's if if this proposal were to get through in Congress, it would make Georgia's refusal to accept the ACA's Medicaid expansion even more expensive and an even dumber idea in the middle of a pandemic. Last thing before we go here, a couple of coming attractions. Uh, the session is going to get fired back up on Tuesday and two pieces of legislation that we're likely to see in the next week or so. One is going to come from Georgia Senate Majority Leader Mike Dugan, who is going to release an omnibus legislative proposal of election law changes. Um, I think we talked a little bit about what was likely to be in this bill, but the one thing to look for on this big bill that Senator Dugan is going to put out is what makes the cut for what potentially could be the Republicans' big proposal to change election law, likely to make it harder to vote, and what gets left on the cutting room floor, what doesn't have enough support among Republicans broadly in a, in a way that would actually get it passed. Um, and then another piece of coming attraction, Governor Kemp's office is going to release their proposal to reform the state citizen's arrest statute this week. Uh, this is according to AJC's Maya Prabhu and Greg Bluestein. They are likely to leave in some protections for law enforcement officers and private businesses to detain lawbreakers, but otherwise largely getting rid of the citizen's arrest statute. 
Governor Kemp made this a top priority in his State of the State address, and we will see sort of his opening salvo on how to do that uh, next week. So we will leave it there on those uh, two coming attractions. Session is probably going to heat back up. We're going to start to see the proposals that actually divide Republicans and Democrats, um, and we're going to be in a sprint all the way to the end of the 40 days, uh, so long as session does not get delayed for COVID reasons. Uh, So far, so good, uh, but we shall see. Uh, But we will be back next week to talk about this and other issues. So as always, Luke, thanks for joining the podcast. Uh, Happy to be here and look forward to looking uh, and talking about those those issues as they develop. All righty, y'all. Stay safe and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.